0: Good morning, everybody. Who's done with all their shopping? Everyone, who's, anyone done? There's some. Some are completely done. Because you're not buying anybody gifts, Justin. Is that why you're done? Like nobody's getting. Okay. Sorry, Chris. I don't know how it worked out. Fourth and fifth graders, you're dismissed to your class. Fourth and fifth graders, you are dismissed to your class. Let me begin by saying a huge thank you to you, the Living Stones Church, I just can't think of a time in our history we have when we have wanted to do something for our community and bless students or whatever it is that you have not come through and this year has been no exception the Give 2011, you, you responded with great generosity, and I just want to say thank you for that. We exceeded what it is that we were even asking for, not to even mention all of the donations that you made in terms of toys and hats and gloves and those sorts of things. So I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for always being a generous church and allowing me to brag so freely to all my pastor friends about you. So thank you for that. That's always very important to me. Number two, let me tell you about the next couple weekends and what's going to be going on here. Our Christmas Eve services are going to be this coming Saturday on Christmas Eve. Now, these will be our weekend services, so we will not have services the next day on Christmas Day. They'll be at Christmas on Christmas Eve. We're going to have two of them. One will be at 5 o'clock, and the other will be at 7 o'clock. 5 o'clock, if you've got kids who you want to be back in Kids Canyon... Bring them at 5 o'clock. They're going to have a huge happy birthday party to Jesus with balloons and all sorts of things. That will be at 5 o'clock. Now, some families, they like to enjoy around this season kind of more family-oriented things. And if that's the case for you, 7 o'clock will be that bring your kids at 7 o'clock and bring them in here. There will not be a Kids Canyon in the back at 7 o'clock, although there will be a nursery for kids 2 and under. So that's what's going on this weekend, two services on Saturday evening, nothing on Sunday morning. And then the following weekend, uh, the first, uh, January 1st, can you believe it, 2011's over and 2012 is going to be here. On the 1st, instead of having three morning services, we're going to have two morning services and they're going to be at 10.30 and 11.55. To give you time to sober up, so we're going to cancel the nine (laughs) o'clock service. So, I'm just kidding. I think anyhow. Now, on the back of your bulletin, it says on the December 31st is our New Year's Day services. That's that's supposed to be just a one, like just on the first. So, don't show up on the 31st for that. That's it'll be on the first. So, that's what's happening the next couple of weeks. Uh, I told my wife uh, earlier. I said. My sermon's shorter this morning. This will be my Christmas gift to the church. It'll be a much shorter. Now, don't hold your breath. I am the worst at predicting how, like in my head, all of my sermons, about 25 to 30 minutes. And then when I just get going and start preaching, they end up being much longer. So don't hold your breath, but I think it will be a little bit uh, shorter this morning for you. We want to conclude our series, Unwrapped, and what we've been talking about over the past two weeks in regards to the vulnerability of God. I mean, the idea and concept that the God, the creator of all things, would himself, because of his great love for us, put himself in postures and positions of vulnerability to feel pain, to enter into suffering, and that he does that for us because of love. And so we're going to conclude this, uh, this morning. It was back in August of 1999, newly crowned King Abdullah II of Jordan decided that he needed to get right information about how his people were feeling and were responding to changes that were going on in the country of Jordan. And he knew, uh, like what most usually most uh, people in authority know, that, that the people around them at times are very hesitant to give them bad news. Like they're very hesitant to say things that are negative. They're very hesitant to, I don't know why it is, but sometimes you kind of tiptoe around somebody who's in charge or the boss or has the authority. In fact, in World War II, uh, Winston Churchill knew in order to make good decisions in the midst of war, he had to have the, the facts. I mean, it didn't matter how bad they were, how negative they were, that he needed a pipeline of just complete and utter transparency and truth. And so he put together a special committee and their only job was to give Winston Churchill the bad news. That was their only job, to give them the truth of what was going on in the war. Well, King Abdullah II of Jordan, he knew, he wanted to figure out, how do I get out and actually hear people? And so what he decided to do is to disguise himself as a taxi driver. And he ditched his security detail, and he went out and he drove a taxi in Amman all evening long. No one knew it was him, and he just began to ask them questions about how they felt, about the changes in Jordan, some of the things that they were thinking. And he was so impressed by people's honesty in it and what he'd learned that he decided to do this on a regular basis. So when he turned 39, the 39-year-old monarch in 2001, he decided to go an entire uh, old man Arab Disguise, and So he put on a fake white beard and had the whole uh, Arabic dress on, and he began to just roam through government buildings totally undetected and just asking people and talking to people about their opinions. And in the end, it was his way of knowing in order to really connect with people, in order to really know what they're thinking, to how they're living, to how they're feeling. You have to be in and among them and be one of them. And so that was his tactic. Have going to watched the show Undercover Boss? Have you seen that show? It's kind of the same idea, right? Where you've got the owner of the company or the CEO, the big wig, they disguise himself or herself and they take an entry level position to figure out just kind of to see how just the normal employees are are doing in terms of the job and how they respond. And so often, like I saw one this past week, it was a guy named Igor and he was from Kazakhstan and he worked for 7-Eleven driving a delivery truck at night, like in the, the third shift. And so uh, the CEO of 7 disguised himself and was going to be in training, and so Igor was supposed to train him. And there's this beautiful story of this guy who came to America and is married, even though his wife works one shift and he's on another shift. They get to see each other a weekend. And he was so kind and gracious, and even when he was kinda, even when the owner, CEO, was messing up. And so in the end, uh, of course, there's a sweet reward. Igor gets something, his own franchise. I mean, he sorts those things. But the principle behind it is it's a moving story of somebody who normally is in a business suit and is normally making all the decisions, has all the authority, gets to live life as normal employees do, and they begin to have greater sympathy, greater understanding, greater respect for the people who are really making the company work. And just a beautiful picture, kind of that same sort of picture. Now, Soren Kierkegaard, who is a Danish philosopher, and his last name is Kierkegaard, which is kind of fun to say, so you should try it later. Kierkegaard is kind of how to, so just go practicing that. In his philosophical fragments, he retold the story of Christmas, and this is how he retold it. He said, One day there was a very powerful king who was out just roaming around his kingdom and observing the things that were in his kingdom. Of course, being the king, he had absolute rule and reign over his kingdom. He was the sovereign, and he always got what he wanted because he was the king. Even growing up in the court, in the family that was in the dynasty that he belonged to, he knew that kings get what kings want. He had seen it over and over and over again. So he understood his power, he understood his authority, he understood what it meant to walk as the reigning monarch of the kingdom. But as he was surveying his kingdom one day, he came across and noticed a, a commoner, a woman who was working out in his fields. And for whatever reason, when he saw her, her heart, his heart was just struck by her, and he wanted to be around her, he wanted to love her, and so what he did is he knew that at some point he could go in as a king to say, you're mine, that's how it worked. I'm, you're going to be my wife, you're going to be, I mean, he could do that if he wants, but he knew that he would always live with a little bit of insecurity on whether or not she would truly love him for him or because he was the king and had all the power. I mean, who was going to say no to the king? So what he decided to do one day is to leave the palace and to leave everything behind, his, his crown, his robes, all of the things that would indicate he was a monarch, and he dressed as a plain commoner, and he got a job working in the fields or alongside the same woman. So day after day, he would work alongside her. They would sow seed together. They would reap the, the, reap the harvest together. They would talk. They got to know one another. They began, and, and, and over time, to have kind of an attraction to one another and begin to move towards one another in that way until finally one day, as a commoner, he asked her, Would you marry me? Believing, full, believing wholeheartedly that he was just a commoner like her, he accept, she accepted the invitation to be his wife, and he said, That's fantastic. I'm going to plan the wedding. Just be ready on this day. I'll come and pick you up. Leave all the details to me. So she got dressed up in her most beautiful dress that she owned, and her friends and her family were waiting. And then all of a sudden, this commoner shows up with a thousand soldiers and chariots and musicians and trumpeters to pick up his bride. And so she gets into the chariot, and they usher her through the city with trumpets blaring and with music, and she goes right through the city gate. She goes all the way through the city. She makes it all the way into the palace. She walks through the atrium of the palace, and there he is sitting on his throne with his crown and his robes and his his his, uh, his royal garb. And she discovers for the first time that this commoner that she fell in love with was actually the king of the kingdom. And so he rises to his feet. He goes and he meets his bride, and he says to her, The reason why I did this is because I wanted you to love me for who I am, for me, and not because I'm the king. And now I know you love me. And so they got married. This is from Soren Kierkegaard, the story of Christmas. It is like the undercover boss. It's sort of like King Abdullah II where God, the God, unwraps himself. Now think about this for a moment. God in all of his glory and majesty in heaven. Could you imagine what that would even look like? I mean, I don't even know how to communicate such a concept, but if you could allow your spirit mind for just a moment to imagine what God in all of his glory would look like in heaven is willing because of his love for us to unwrap himself of all that and to take on an entirely different form, to take on the form of a baby. He becomes human. It is, in fact, it's sort of like that undercover boss. It is like that CEO or King Abdullah, but... More appropriately, it is for us, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who's now lying in a manger. And what makes this so remarkable is how he did it. That God came in the most vulnerable of way. He came as a baby. And in my mind, I'm trying to the God of the universe humbles himself to the point of becoming a helpless, completely dependent, and vulnerable little baby. Newborns, as you know, can't do anything for themselves, nothing. They're in every way, every way, dependent. They don't even realize they have hands and arms, which, for me, the development stage of kids, that's one of my favorite parts when they discover their hand. You ever watch a baby kind of, I think I can move this. This is attached to me. That's my favorite moment. A newborn that's discarded cannot survive cannot speak, it cannot communicate, it cannot feed themselves, it cannot move themselves, it cannot clean themselves. And I think, uh, you know, when I became a dad for the first time, when Isaac was born 15 years ago, whew, uh, when he was born, I think, I don't know what I was thinking, but I immediately couldn't wait to play with Isaac, like I wanted to play. And I think my disappointment was, as a newborn, they can't play back, right? There's no playing. And so I'd just move his little hands around, hee, it's daddy, you know, stuff like that. And so, I mean, this is this is me changing a dirty diaper. You see that? Uh, this Look how helpless this little boy. This is Isaac, which I'm keeping this picture for his future girlfriend and wife to see together. So, but in every way, he's just, he's just a helpless little baby, just totally dependent on his daddy for everything, and his mommy. I don't want to cut her out either. I mean, she, she did a good job too. Here's what we're discussing Notre Dame name together and trying to, right raising up another generation. And it's crazy to me to consider that God would take on our form as a baby. Now, if I were God, I'd do it totally differently. Like, if, and this is why I'm not God. But if I were, I would do it totally differently. I wouldn't show up as a baby. I would wait till I was like a gro- I would show up as a grown man, and not just any man. Like a tall, just imposing figure. It would be like I would have like superhero kind of powers, and I would show them off, and I would be striking in every way. It would be I'd be, be an impressive specimen. Let me tell you, if I were God, pulling this whole thing off, yet God seems to do everything the exact opposite of what I would have done. That's why I'm not God, and in it, revealing his vulnerability and his humility for us. He shows up to an unwed virgin teenager who appears to be of very little consequence. I mean, Just think about our story. At least go to nobility. At least go to somebody with... He goes to an unwed teenager. There's even allowed to be a hint of scandal and maybe in the day it really was scandalous in the story and as it continues on there's risk of, for her, death by law it's possible or at least divorce from joseph and joseph himself he's a builder he's a carpenter by trade if i was writing the script i would go to a king or the most wealthy man in all of judea jesus is born in bethlehem not rome not jerusalem i mean i would have picked at least a fine city a large city a very important city not bethlehem what really what came out of whatever came out of bethlehem and he grows up in Nazareth, not Alexandria, not one of the fine cities, but Nazareth. Anyone from Argus? It kind of reminds me of the, the Argus. That's what that's what Nazareth is—the Argus of Indiana. No offense if you or your family is from there. I don't mean anything by that, just, just for you know visual sake. I mean, when Isaac was born, we were in a hospital room and everybody wore gloves and it was sanitary. And those—I mean—that's not not when God shows up, it is in the most unsanitary of conditions. I mean, it's in a barn and all the things that are in a barn and in it, he's placed in a feeding trough and all the saliva and stuff that would be in a feeding trough. (laughs) Even the birth announcement. I mean, if I were God and really at Jesus' birth, I mean, I would make such a cosmic display in terms of birth announcements that everyone would see, but nope. It doesn't go to kings. It doesn't go to dignitaries. Now, I will say this. He at least put together an angelic choir, which I think is awesome. Like, that's a good start, an angelic choir. (laughs) But but when the curtains are pulled back and the the choir performs, do you know who they're singing to? Just a couple of shepherds in the field. It would be so disappointing if I were an angel thinking, this is it. This is the turnout to the concert. (laughs) I would send out birth announcements to everyone to come and see the new baby. But the only ones who, I mean... It was signaled by a star, which I think is cool, but the only one who got it were a few eastern wise men. Not even anyone among God's people understood. And you think, surely it gets better, but the truth is, no, as the story unfolds, uh, Mary and Joseph and now this newborn baby who is helpless and completely dependent and God have to flee to Egypt for fear of Herod and their very lives. There is nothing in this story that would cause us to be overwhelmed. There's nothing in the story that would cause us to be intimidated. There's nothing in the story, at least in the particulars of the details, that would cause us any sort of obligation to love and reverence and worship. So why would God do this? And I think it's, as Kierkegaard pointed out in his story, so that we might be free to love him in return, to truly love him. That he is the king who became commoner, who entered our world so that we might enter into his world. He allows us to love him, to freely love him. And this is what's so amazing to me about Jesus. And in his ministry, God, as he enters into the vulnerable spaces, continues to always move and gravitate towards the vulnerable, to the least of these. He always identifies with the weak and the poor and the lowly and the outcasts. And he won't let anything in his person or being cause them to be intimidated by his position. He always gravitates towards the least of these, to those who are orphaned or widowed, to the alien and stranger, or to the poor. He doesn't choose a palace, but instead says, I have nowhere to lay my head. He won't choose the finest of clothes. He doesn't seem to receive the most noble of education. The things that are due a person of wealth and prestige and influence, he doesn't take any of those on. That God wants them to love him in response, not because he is the king and they have to, not because he's the almighty and this is now required, but of their own free will. And out of it we see God seems to gravitate towards and identifies with the losers. And this should be good news, especially if you're a Cubs fan. This is why I believe Jesus loves the Cubs and doesn't care much for the Yankees. Jesus is for the underdog. The story of Christmas is about a God who identifies with us. And this is the good news for us because we know who we are. And so for those of you and me who feel often unspiritual, like a real failure, like a real letdown, like we've messed things up once again, for those of us who walk around with a little bit of insecurity that we aren't good enough, that everyone around us is probably disappointed, let alone God in heaven, if he, which he does see, has to be disappointed. What we see in Christmas and in the story of Jesus is not at all. He takes on our form to be among us, to be like us, so there would be nothing about him that would intimidate us or cause us to shrink back, but to freely move towards him in love. This is what he, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, verse 15, "'For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses,' But we have one that has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Now, let me stop right there. Just, can you imagine this? I mean, sometimes that Jesus has been tempted in every way, just like we are. There's nothing you experience. There's nothing that comes against you. There is nothing by way of temptation or weakness. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He was tired. I'm telling you, there were moments I bet he felt irritable. I mean, right? I mean, everything that we would list on our sheets of things that we struggle with, Jesus understands them all. And yet it goes on to say, but he was without sin, which is what makes him such a great high priest, that he totally understands where we are, and yet he could still mediate on our behalf to God because of his sinlessness. And so the writer will say, so then let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. We don't need to be intimidated. We don't need to shrink back. We don't need to be worried about a God who's like, 'Mm mm-hmm, yeah, no. No, in Jesus, he shows us, he longs to enter in with us to the vulnerable places for us to approach the the throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the story of Christmas. This is the story of the incarnation. In order for God to truly win us, he had to become like us and in that to identify with us. And this will be Jesus' entire ministry. You'll see it as Jesus finally does enter the city of Jerusalem. I mean, he doesn't do it on like a great white horse or some stallion. He's not flanked by soldiers carrying weapons, but rather he, he enters in on a donkey. And instead of soldiers flanking him, he's got a peasant mob with some branches from a tree. Instead of trumpets announcing his arrival into Jerusalem, it's just some kids who are chanting some songs. And in the end, he does not put on a crown of jewels, but our king will put on a crown of thorns. And in every way... Be the one who moves into the vulnerable. And I know Christmas can become big and overwhelming and stressful. It's full of obligations or tasks to be completed. I get that. But this week, in the midst of it, I just want you to remember the truth of our story. It begins as anything but big and overwhelming. It begins as a God who is so crazy in love with us that he would enter into the most vulnerable moment in history, taking on the form of a newborn baby. He does this that we might freely love him in return. It is for us a story of the glorious depths of God's love. Let me finish with this. It also does mean something for us who've confessed Jesus as Lord. For those of us who know that that little baby in that manger really is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, the one and only living God. It means if our king is willing to humble himself, then we too must be willing to humble ourselves and enter into the places of vulnerability. This is what Paul will say in Philippians 2. And most likely, this is probably one of the earliest hymns that they sang together. And it says this in 2.5. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What this means for us is in our story that if God was willing to humble himself to take on the nature of a servant, then as we follow him, we too will need to humble ourselves and take on the nature of a servant and enter into those vulnerable places. And I know we talked a lot about that last week, about just even some suggestions on these. this might be an act of vulnerability to move into. And so it might be this week to reconcile with a family member you haven't spoken to in a decade. Or, or it might be to do some act of service for maybe one of your neighbors. It might be to pick up the phone and offer an apology to your son or your daughter for whatever reason. These would be the things that Christ will call us to follow after him in. But what amazing thought that our God would unwrap himself from all the heavenly glory due him and into a world of vulnerability because he loves us and because of that we want to love him freely. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks that you're a God who loved us with such a passion that you were willing to go to such lengths and depths to take on the nature of us, to be like a new, to be a newborn. And all that all we know to say, Lord, is we thank you. And we're we're honored and we are blessed and grateful that you would extend us this grace and this mercy. And so this morning, we just wish to remind ourselves and even to live in this week that reality of how much you love us. So in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.